Okay, hello. It's a little hot in here, so uh, there's a few jugs of water at the back far table if anyone is interested. I got a few waters up here I might need myself. If I could pick one word to summarize the book of Romans, it'd be just that, grace. Um, if you would open your Bibles, if you're following along, I think the passages will be up on the screen. Um, the first chapter of Romans is our text today, and uh, before we get to our main text starting at verse 8, a little bit of hum going on there. Be good to give some background from last time when I, when I preached, which was uh, some time ago. Went through the first seven verses. And uh, one of the reasons that I chose the book of Romans is because among all the books of Holy Scripture, Romans is at or near the top of those books which provide the fullest presentation of the gospel. Romans addresses many issues, but the heart of the letter is how sinners can be made right with a holy God. It is rich with doctrine and beneficial for the believer at every turn. Paul, the author of Romans, was born an Israelite, a Roman citizen by birthright. He was taught by the respected Rabbi Gamaliel in his university in Jerusalem. He was a member of the strictest Jewish sect known as the Pharisees. His Hebrew name was Saul, but his Roman name was Paul. Paul was once a persecutor of Christians and a zealous enemy of the gospel. That is, until he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. After Paul's conversion, he immediately began preaching the gospel. Paul's letter to the Romans was likely written about 20 or so years after his conversion or about seven years into his missionary journeys. Unlike other letters, Paul is not writing to correct false doctrine or misconduct. Instead, he wanted to give this faithful group of believers in the heart of the Roman Empire something which they lacked, which was apostolic teaching, specifically regarding the gospel of grace. Paul doesn't waste any time. He starts talking about Jesus in verse 1 by identifying himself as a servant of Christ Jesus and that he has a special calling from Christ to proclaim the gospel. In verse 2 of Romans 1, we learn that the gospel is not new. It was promised beforehand. In fact, we learn in chapter 4 of Romans that even before Christ came, Abraham and David we're made righteous by faith and not by works. So it's always been a faith. Um, verse, verses uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 1, he touches on the dual nature of Christ as both God and man and also his resurrection. Verse 5, he talks about the goal or aim of his apostleship, which is to bring the message of salvation to the nations. And in verses 6 and 7, he identifies his audience to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, or literally called saints. Um, Paul refers to them as saints, not because they are uh, without sin, but because that is what they are in Christ. 
It is their new identity. It is to these saints that our main text is addressed. And, of course, Romans being as rich as it is, we're only going to be really riding along the surface. But let's begin by reading, starting at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Lord, we thank you for this passage before us today, and may it uh, stir our hearts. May your spirit move and work in and through us, and we thank you for your uh, graciousness, for your providence, for all that are here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Before diving into his lengthy letter in which he expounds the gospel in great detail, Paul gave a personal greeting in which he expressed his love toward fellow believers in Rome. Believers he had never met before, but had heard about. The apostle wanted these people to know that he is writing to them from a heart that overflows with love for them. He wanted them to know that he prayed for them often, that he longed to see them. Paul intended that they know his heart, and that his absence from visiting them did not at all mean that he was indifferent to them. As we examine this passionate introduction to Paul's letter, we learn something of the character of Paul. And we also learn what thankfulness, what prayerfulness, what fellowship, what shepherding looks like. Let's begin again in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. What was Paul thankful for? Well, he was thankful for the character of the church at Rome, specifically for their faith, their unwavering commitment to Christ, which gave them a reputation of being a church of faith. This news of a group of genuine believers had a far-reaching impact on the world, and this brought thankfulness to the heart of Paul. This was a church willing to stand firm, and people took note. You know, in the last year, I can think of several churches in Canada that I hadn't heard about until recently. You see, when a church remains faithful, especially in face of opposition, it makes waves in the world. Some are upset by it, and for others, it is a great encouragement. But you'll notice that Paul doesn't direct his thanks to the believers in Rome. I mean, wouldn't it be appropriate for Paul to congratulate the saints in Rome for standing firm? 
Maybe Paul was just trying to avoid flattery by thanking God rather than the Roman believers. Well, I don't think so. When I consider Paul's theology, I don't think he would want to credit the Romans for something elsewhere he gives God all the credit for. At the end of Paul's greeting, he will go on to develop the bad news of man's sinfulness and fallen nature. This culminates in chapter 3 with the indictment that there is none that seek for God. Paul, in Paul's view and personal experience, if there is anyone to be thanked for man's faith, it is not the man, but God. As he says in Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In this very familiar passage, the grace, the faith, and all of it is the gift of God. Thus, God gets all the credit and the thanks when believers are brought into the fold. I think it's no mistake that Paul directs his thanks to God. Who else do we have to thank for our salvation? 1 Corinthians 1, 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul thanks God for the work of grace given in Christ Jesus. This leaves no room for boasting. Paul thanks God through Jesus Christ, emphasizing the mediatorial role of Christ in the life of the believer. Jesus is the sinless Son of God who took on flesh, died a substitutionary death on the cross, and rose again for our justification. All the blessings of God come through Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith and our thanks. Paul's thankfulness brings to mind the fact that thankfulness is itself a distinctly Christian virtue. In Psalm 136, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And it goes on and on in Psalms about, about God's steadfast love. It is God's goodness and steadfast love that provide the basis for thankfulness. When we recognize our own sinfulness and depravity, and that apart from God, there's only death, it is natural for us to be thankful to God for the life that He gives. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Worldly thankfulness falls short as it does not acknowledge God as the one to whom we are thankful. I never understood how thankfulness made sense if God is not acknowledged. I was once involved in a series of meetings as part of a training seminar. The purpose was for self-improvement in the workplace and life in general. The leader of the meeting could be described as a motivational speaker or life coach. In the meetings, we were encouraged to make a list of it, at least five things we were thankful for. This was to be a daily exercise so that we could instill in ourselves an outlook of gratitude. And of course, on the surface, that sounds like an honorable goal. However, the attitude of thankfulness was treated as little, little more than a means to an end. 
It was something you practiced in order to achieve a desired result. In this case, the desired result was a better attitude, which in turn spilled over into other positive benefits in your life. The problem is this kind of thankfulness isn't grounded in reality. If we're all at the mercy of time and chance, what basis is there for any meaningful kind of thankfulness? Thankful to who? Thankful to what? Without God as the object, I don't see how thankfulness could be anything other than vain and empty. Paul was not thankful to some impersonal and indifferent force. No, he was thankful to the all-powerful God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice the description of the unbeliever in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Refusal to honor God as God or give thanks uh, to God is a trademark of unbelieving thought. Paul reveals the contrast between believer and unbeliever by showing us what Christian thankfulness looks like. Paul not only thanks God for their faith, but that their faith was proclaimed in all the world. The city of Rome, being the prominent city that it was, provided the perfect hub for the gospel message to be spread. And even though Paul had not personally visited the church at Rome, nor did he play a role in its founding, he is delighted to hear of its impact in Rome and the world. And here we see the heart of Paul. His ministry was not about him. He was not at all concerned about getting the glory and praise for being the one to plant a church in Rome. He was simply thankful that the message of Christ was being proclaimed. He was excited about what God was doing in this church. Christian, when you hear of saints around the world standing firm for their faith, do you get excited? Does your heart well up with gratitude? It is easy to look at the chaos and godlessness of our world and become disheartened. Humanity's basic condition has not changed since Paul's day. But our hope does not rest in any man or institution of man. Our hope rests in God and His purposes in Jesus Christ. If we focus on the opposition of man and the failure of human institutions, we will lose sight of the fact that God is accomplishing His purposes in what seems like impossible circumstances. In Acts chapter 4, we see a good example of believers praising God despite opposition from the authorities. Peter and John were arrested and placed in custody for proclaiming the gospel and, and speaking about the resurrection. Then it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal 
and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's a very striking passage. Despite continuous opposition from the rulers of the day, the believers were encouraged by their understanding of the sovereignty of God, His kingly control over the affairs of men. Listen to that prayer again. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Four different peoples are mentioned, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Israelites, and they all had different reasons for their role, but they all played a role in the public execution of Jesus. The single greatest evil ever committed in the history of humanity is the killing of the sinless Son of God. But this accomplished the greatest good, the salvation of sinners and the display of God's glory, which left them much reason for thankfulness. Continuing on in in verse 9, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Paul is showing us what godly ministry looks like. It begins with the inner man. At the core of who Paul is, is a servant of Christ. The Greek word here is latruo, which means to serve. But not just to serve in a general sense. Latruo means to serve as a form of worship. Paul says that he serves God with his spirit, meaning that he serves God from the core of who he is. The spirit here refers to the inner man, your mind, your will, your emotions. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does spiritual worship look like? What does it look like to present your body as a living sacrifice? Paul answers in the next verse, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Day by day, as our hearts and minds are renewed, our focus shifts from being consumed with worldly priorities to being consumed with godly priorities. Things that matter for eternity. Before being converted, Paul cared much for his religious works, for his nationality as an Israelite, for his reputation as a Pharisee. But after encountering Christ, he saw that these worldly attainments were worthless. He saw that he needed a righteousness outside of himself. The belief that we can be right with God on our own merits is worldly thinking, and it is damning. We are all going to serve something. We are all going to give latruo to something. That inner worship, that inner devotion. At the core of our being, there is something driving our priorities. What is it for you? What is it that is most important to you? What a tragedy it is to build one's life on worldly pursuits. We don't have to guess what was at the center of Paul's thinking. 
continuing on in our passage, the gospel of His Son, the ministry that God Himself called Him to, and to which all believers are called to in some form or another. Previous to this, Paul thought he was serving God by being a good Pharisee. He had much zeal. But as Jesus said to the woman at the well, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. True worship engages the whole heart and represents unreserved devotion. But true worship is grounded in truth. Paul doesn't just serve God in his spirit or inner man. He serves God in truth, the truth of the gospel of his son. There are many religions in the world today who claim to serve God. But as Peter said in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thus, service to God, no matter how sincere or passionate, like Paul was before he was converted, is worthless if it is not grounded in truth, the truth of the gospel of his son. Jonathan Edwards says, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections and emotions of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth, end quote. Paul continues, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. One thing we learn about Paul is that he was a man of prayer. Why do you think prayer was so important to Paul? And why should it be important to us? Our passage says that he prayed continually for this church that he had never met. Paul was a persistent prayer. Have we in the Western church become too complacent when it comes to prayer? Would you describe yourself as a person of passionate and persistent prayer? I know I found that this passage very convicting to myself as I was reading it. I'm not talking about legalistic prayer where you're trying to achieve righteousness through your works. I'm talking about prayer that flows from a heart devoted to Christ, full of thankfulness for what God has done in your life and in the life of others. Prayer from a heart that knows just how much you need God's grace each day. Let's uh, listen to some of Paul's prayers. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul made it his business to pray constantly for the believers in his life. Paul wants to see gospel fruit for their good and for God's glory. Next, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Paul prays that their love and faith would increase and that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Next, Philippians 1, verses 9 to 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here Paul prays that they may have love and discernment that God would present them blameless for the day of Christ. And lastly, uh, Colossians 1, 9 to 11. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy." Paul prays that they may have spiritual wisdom, bear fruit in every good work, increase their knowledge of God, and for strength to endure. Sometimes it's helpful to go through Paul's prayers to see how he prayed. Selfless prayer for the spiritual benefit of others. Prayer becomes natural to us when we comprehend our utter dependence on His grace in our lives. One of the ways we discern God's will and have our minds renewed is through prayer and the reading of Scripture. One of the misconceptions about prayer is that it is about changing the mind of God. It is actually quite the opposite. It is bringing our thoughts in conformity to God's will. We're trying to discern His will, not ours. Paul had a godly desire to meet with the church at Rome, and he prayed as much. However, he recognized that it may not be God's will. Had Paul's prayer been answered, he would not have written his letter to the Romans, and we would not be the beneficiaries of the truths of, his, of this letter. God in his providence kept Paul away from Rome so that Paul's letter would be written and thus preserved for the church down through the centuries. Continuing on uh, in uh, verse 11 of chapter 1, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. When you listen to the way Paul talks about the Roman Christians, you would think he had been acquainted with them for years. He uses language that would normally be used of family members who haven't seen each other for a long time. For I long to see you, he says. He had a yearning in his heart to be used by God to minister to this group of faithful believers. Paul had been the amazing recipient of great blessings through the gospel, which had been revealed to him by Christ, and he could not keep those blessings to himself. Imagine discovering a cure for cancer, heart disease, and other ailments that plague our world. After having your own life saved, your natural response would be to share that cure with others. That would give a small sense of where this desire in Paul comes from. When the weight of our guilt from our sin is lifted, when we comprehend the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, when we deserve nothing but condemnation, there is inexpressible joy that fills the heart of the believer, and you can't help but want others to experience that same joy. 
Paul had a desire to give out of the abundance that he had received. Paul also desired that they be strengthened, it says in our passage. The King James and the New American Standard Bible, instead of uh, using the word strengthened, they use the word established. He wants to impart some spiritual gift to establish them. Of this, MacArthur says, the gift Paul wanted to impart was spiritual, not only in the sense of being in the spiritual realm, but in the sense that it had its source in the Holy Spirit. Because he was writing to believers, Paul was not speaking about the free gift of salvation through Christ, about which he speaks later on in chapter 5, nor could he have been speaking about the gifts he discussed in chapter 12, because those gifts are bestowed directly by the Spirit himself, not through a human instrument. He must therefore have been using the term spiritual gift in its broadest sense, referring to any kind of divinely empowered spiritual benefit he could bring to the Roman Christians through preaching, teaching, exhorting, comforting, praying, guiding, and disciplining, end quote. That list of things MacArthur mentions is important. Preaching, teaching, exhorting, comforting, praying, guiding, and discipling. All are necessary ingredients for the spiritual growth of the believer. And Paul wanted to be a part of that with the church at Rome. Donald Gray Barnhouse expands on this. He says, the Christian needs to be established. When he is first saved, he has the whole of his past life and manner of thinking. Uh, acting and being to overcome by the introduction of the new life of Christ and the principles that flow from it. To be established is to be made stable, to be placed firmly, to be rendered constant, to be made firm. How many times in the Bible there are statements that tell the Christian that he is to stand fast, that he is to be rooted and grounded, that he is to be strong in the Lord, that he is to be settled, steadfast, unwavering, the fact that there are so many injunctions to stability shows our need for that which will establish us. We have a hymn which includes the line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are born with a mind that is the carnal mind, at enmity against God, that is not subject to the law of God, and that cannot be. We are born as natural, soulish men that receive not the things of the Spirit, and that have no natural capacity to receive them. The down-dragging force of sin, a gravitational force with a never-ending pull, must be overcome by the establishment of new lines of force that pull upward toward the life of the Spirit." End quote. We all have the need to be established and strengthened, and preaching is only one aspect of that. We need that community, that fellowship, as Paul says, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I think it goes without saying that Paul would not have considered a Zoom meeting to suffice. Hebrews 10 tells us, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The need to meet with other believers, the need to be established and strengthened in your faith is an ongoing need in the life of the believer. That is why we celebrate the Lord's table. It serves as an object lesson for us to remind us of the grace of God in our lives and the mutual encouragement of fellowship with one another. 
In Romans 16, Paul says to greet one another with a holy kiss. This was a common practice in the first century, signifying acceptance and kinship. Now, we might laugh that off today as, as being a foreign custom, but this was important for new believers who were often rejected by their families for their faith. Make no mistake, there is a cost to following Christ. Sometimes it comes from government. Sometimes it comes from family or friends, which is why you need encouragement from fellow saints, and they need your encouragement as well. Paul, who had been taught by Christ himself, did not think of himself so highly as to not need to learn from and benefit from less mature believers in the church, which is why he desired not only to be a blessing to them, but that they would, would return the favor. Verse 13 of our passage says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul's purpose in coming to Rome was so that he may reap some harvest, it says. The New American Standard says that I may obtain some fruit among you. In either case, it is a figure, a figure of speech. Paul is not literally wanting to come to Rome to pluck garden vegetables or pick apples. That's not the fruit. That's not the harvest he's talking about. Um, scripture uses the metaphor of fruit in three ways. The first way it uses fruit is that of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These refer to attitudes that characterize the believer. Another kind of fruit in Scripture refers to action or holy living resulting in the practical deeds of generosity and praise. But there's a third kind of fruit, and that kind of fruit involves an increase, an increase both of converts and of maturity in believers. It is this third kind of fruit in view here. Paul wanted to help the church grow through new converts and grow in service to Christ. Paul did not want money or, or prominence. He simply wanted to see people transformed by the power of the gospel. Which brings us to verse 14 of this gospel. Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Paul is under obligation. And there are two senses in which he is under obligation. Another way to say that is that Paul is indebted. The first is that he is, he is indebted or obligated toward God. In, in Romans 1 verse 1, Paul's very first verse, he states, Paul states that he was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was specifically chosen as God's messenger to bring the gospel message to the world. In Acts 9.15, Acts it says that he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. As an apostle, Paul had a unique obligation to deliver the divine revelation of the gospel of Christ to the world. Now, we're not apostles, but we too have a mandate from God. We too are indebted to God. 
And when we look at the Great Commission, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is the mandate of, uh, of believers. We were also purchased from the slave market of sin. We belong to our master <clears throat> who paid our debt. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We who claim the name of Christ are under obligation to Him to bring the gospel to our friends and neighbors. But there's a second sense in which Paul is obligated. And this obligation is to all men. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. As in our text, Paul is indiscriminate with the gospel message. He isn't concerned about one's standing in society, one's ethnicity, one's intelligence. Paul, to Paul, all that matters is that the message can be communicated with clarity to all facets of society. All men stand justly condemned before God because of their sin. This, Paul will explicate, beginning in verse 18. But Paul has good news about what God has done to forgive the sins of humanity, and Paul cannot keep this saving message to himself. If you were to find somebody drowning and you had the means of rescuing them, you are indebted to them in that moment. We live in a world of drowning sinners. As soon as we gain hold of the saving gospel message, we are under obligation to proclaim that message, that by all means some might be saved. Now Paul concludes his personal greeting with these words, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul does not operate out of duty, but out of excitement and readiness to preach the gospel. He surely knows that persecution and trials await him if he goes to Rome. But he is not concerned for his own safety. His love for God and others motivates him. You can tell a lot about a person by what excites them. One thing about Paul is that he bleeds gospel. Notice that it is necessary that the gospel be preached. You may have heard the phrase, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And while it is good to represent Christ well by our attitudes and actions, and our patterns of life should be consistent with our professions of faith. None of that matters if we don't open our mouth and preach. We have not yet proclaimed the gospel. 
Faith comes by hearing. Remember also the audience to which Paul is speaking. In verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, the called, or called to be saints. Paul is writing his letter to the saints, the believers of Rome. The gospel then is of value not only to the pagan to hear and believe, but also to the Christian to hear and be edified and strengthened in their faith. Paul reminded the believers in Corinth of the gospel. Paul reminded the believers in Corinth of the gospel as well. And we'll conclude with this verse. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. There will never come a point where a Christian outgrows the gospel. For Paul, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was the foundation of, the Christian, of all of Christian life, which is why he was eager to preach to believer and unbeliever alike. As I read our passage today from Romans, I found that Paul sets a pretty high standard for what Christian ministry and personal walk look like. I know I was convicted when I read Paul's um, greeting. We should all strive to have Paul's passion for prayer, Paul's passion for the gospel, Paul's passion to strengthen other believers, Paul's boldness. But here's what I want you to know. You don't measure up. We've talked a lot about Paul and the example of a godly shepherd that he sets for us. And that's great, but the gospel is not about Paul. Our righteousness is not found in reaching Paul's level of spiritual maturity. It is found in Christ alone. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our Lord, we thank you for this passage today, this, this uh, short little greeting of Paul before he uh, goes into his, um, uh, the beginning of, of his uh, gospel proclamation and how much, um, how much there is in this passage. It's not simply a throwaway passage. There's much we can learn and uh, we thank you for these words, and may they go forth um, and bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.